I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Hannah Bloomfield. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are a climate scientist. Um, can you explain what that is? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'm a climate scientist. Um, I guess my, most of my work works around climate impacts. So what I end up doing is looking at um, how the weather and climate that we experience around us can impact on different human systems, like energy, insurance or agriculture. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, now, are you a student or a, a teacher, a professor, a, re- a researcher? So I'm an early career researcher. Um, I finished my PhD four and a half years ago. So now I'm kind of doing postdoctoral studies at universities. Okay. And what are you doing your postdoctoral studies in? Um, so I actually got a new job a month ago. Um, so all of the jobs I've had have been around um, different impacts, but I've just started one looking at um, combined windstorm and flood risks on different parts of Europe. So, yeah, the, I mean, we get lots of big storms and we get lots of floods, but um, they all cause a lot of damage. And what we think is it would be really catastrophic if these two things happen at the same time. Uh, so we want to kind of understand why that might happen. You must have had an interesting summer with all the flooding in, in Europe this year. Yeah, it's very topical, actually. While I was interviewing for the job, all of these big floods were happening. And um, yeah, it just really emphasizes how important it is um, with climate change to understand all these big extreme events that are happening. Absolutely. Now, uh, what you, what's your professional background? What were you studying in school? Were you doing climate science the whole time? No, so I actually came to climate science, I guess, relatively late. So um, I always liked science at school, um, but when I went to university, my bachelor's degree, I did natural sciences, um, which in the UK means you can pick two majors. um, And I picked maths and physics. Um, So it's very theoretical, everything I was doing. Um, Very, you know, lots of equations, lots of heavy maths. But I kind of, yeah, I realized kind of halfway through my degree, I started doing a placement and they offered kind of internships um, for us to go and work with different scientists. And um, I got put in the seismology department. So I was looking at earthquakes, um, which was totally different. I didn't know anything about earthquakes, but I kind of decided, oh, um, actually the the environmental kind of applications of this maths and physics and all these equations are actually really interesting. Um, so in my, in my master's year, after I finished, I decided actually let's, let's explore some of these kind of impacts. So I looked at some oceanography, some meteorology um, and some low carbon technology modules. And from that, I kind of stumbled into doing a climate science PhD 
Um, and then, yeah, the rest is kind of history, I guess. Um, but yeah, I didn't know from a young age. I actually, I have no qualifications in geography or weather at all before the PhD. Because um, when I speak to people, they're often like, oh, you obviously really liked geography at school. And I was like, oh, no, I, I never did it. I always picked history and languages. So it's quite funny, really. It's funny. It often goes the opposite direction where people get... Um lured into maths, uh, math and sciences um, from geology or paleontology. Or, or, or my paleontologist always says that it, it's a gateway science. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, I, I went totally the other way. Yeah, I kind of veered out of all the, um, yeah, maths and things. A lot of my colleagues went on to do things like finance, accounting, or, you know, hardcore computing. And I kind of got into the impacts. So, yeah, it's been fun. Wonderful. And do you find that your background in math and science uh, contributes to the work that you do today? Yeah, so I really didn't realise when I started um, in the whole climate science field that like um, a lot of the fundamental maths that you learn in your undergraduate degrees, so like fluid dynamics and um, equations of motion, they're all what the climate models use to run. You know, they put these equations on a grid and then push them forward in time. So everything that is learned in the undergraduate degree is exactly what's being used. Uh, It's just getting put in a massive computer. So it's pretty amazing really, you know, that the stuff you learn is really, really useful um, and is really being used by by the scientists out there. But I, yeah, for me, like, it's really nice to have that background from the maths background. So I think I have quite a good understanding of, you know, how you can discretize these equations and I don't get too phased when you see the big walls of maths um but I think one of the main things I use every day is actually like um computer science so I did two or three modules in that was at university and it's absolutely fundamental to all of the weather and climate modeling is done um any good grasp of computing I think is like one of the main things we get asked in all of our kind of applications and jobs like can you code can you do this so yeah it's a really really growing field I think for computational scientists. Now you mentioned that you just changed uh, jobs Um, I have noticed most careers aren't uh, linear you don't often end up where you expected to end up and you did mention that you changed your uh, degree focus Um, has your career been a bit circuitous or have you faced any setbacks? Yeah, so I think that's one of the kind of scary things about being in academia that you sometimes have to move around, you know, it's hard to get the funding. And so I did my PhD in at the University of Reading, which is a world leading meteorology department. I was really lucky to be able to go there. Um, and then I was able to stay um, like I did three postdocs after that, a very short eight month one then three years and then another six months and then we kind of ran out of money you know it was was time to go time to find somewhere else Um, and I've just moved institutions I'm working um, now at another university in the UK in Bristol Um, but it's for me that was quite a big move um, to to today as well as changing topics changing institution you know everything is different but so far, everyone's been wonderful. Uh, it's been, it's really good. And everyone I speak to say, you know, change is good. It's good to, um, good to try different things. Good to not totally out of your comfort zone because there's still links to what I used to do with the energy systems and things in there. But it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's um, good, I think, so far. Hopefully I won't, 
um, look back on this in five years and be like, oh, Hannah, you were wrong. It was a, it was a tough move. <laughs> I found that meteorologists as a whole tend to be a very friendly bunch, <laughs> but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like everyone always seems very lovely when we go to meetings and conferences and yeah, in the departments. You mentioned you did three postdoctoral degrees. Um, now, they may be different in the UK, but uh, here I, I thought postdocs uh, took years and years. Um, what were your postdoc uh, studies in? Yeah, so it, it's possibly a bit different in the UK. We get, I think we get a bit more little chunks of short-term funding. Um, so my first one, um, so my PhD was looking at... Um, impacts of climate and change on energy systems so in the future what will happen to um, wind turbines solar panels and our demand like how does climate change influence these things um, and then I did a very short postdoc after this um, so still working in climate impacts but working with the insurance sector um, to think about um, windstorm risk and how um, what type of buildings might get battered down when we get big storms coming across the UK so this is much less as extreme. I talk about um, extreme weather in the UK. It's very different to what you might experience in America. You know, you get proper extreme weather like tornadoes and hurricanes. But for us, a storm is a big deal. Um, so we don't build up buildings very well. So they all might fall over. Um, so sorry, that was number one. And then then I did a three year postdoc, which is more normal, I think, you know, um, a fully funded project. And that was looking at um, predicting the weather. Um, for various different um, energy components like wind power. And, and then I just finished another short project. Um, so that was looking again at the impacts of climate change, but using much more kind of complex models. So yeah, I guess um, potentially this, these short contracts can be a real challenge, you know, particularly early in your career. Um, in the UK, we really do come up against that quite a lot. And it's a real privilege if someone offers you a three-year job. You're like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. We certainly get a lot of windstorms here in Vancouver. Um, that's probably the most extreme weather that we get. Um, and you mentioned that many of your colleagues from the uh, math studies went into finance. So it makes sense that you'd work with uh, insurance companies to find out the financial impact of climate change. Yeah, exactly. No, it's um, that's a big thing at the moment. There's a lot of um, up-and-coming research going on about how the financial sector might be impacted by climate change, and particularly all these investments in big buildings and infrastructure that we can damage. <laughs> that's a really interesting take on climate change. Uh, now, in your studies, uh, have you made any cool discoveries that you'd care to share? Um. So I think probably the thing I'm most proud of that we found out is that during my PhD, so my project was the first project to kind of show how important it is to account for climate variability when you're thinking about power systems. So um, it's very common in the kind of energy modelling communities just to use kind of one year of data. Um, we call it like a typical meteorological year. You use that to model exactly how your power systems might run. But actually, um, in my PhD, we showed that, you know, weather is very different every year. And that might be obvious to a meteorologist, um, but it actually really, really changes the output of your power system modelling results. Um, and we kind of were able to show that it's really important that the meteorologists and the energy system modellers talk to each other 
especially as we build more kind of wind power and solar power and hydropower. So I think that's probably the biggest thing we've done, like pushing the communication together. Absolutely. I mean, if you took this past year as your baseline, um, your models would be completely out of whack. Yeah, exactly. Like huge heat waves, um, like especially Texas, that crazy cold wave that happened. Yeah, you, you use that to benchmark how you need to build the system. And if you think that's average rather than an extreme, um, you'd spend an absolute fortune on infrastructure that you might only need to use once in a hundred years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been really interesting to work with energy companies and energy modelers to just work out how how challenging that is though, to put lots and lots of different years of data in. It's um, yeah, m- much more of a challenge than I realized. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they weren't doing that uh, before yeah i think the norm for them was maybe to use this average year and maybe to do an extreme as well if they have time just to kind of think oh well um you know maybe we'll stress test it um, a little bit but now um yeah since we published this stuff in sort of 2015 16 it's now become really common and people do it all the time and um, it's definitely become the norm which is fantastic now One of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about people's field stories or uh, just when experiments or um, tasks just don't go right. Uh, It's frustrating, but it's also really entertaining. (laughs) Do you have any any of those stories that you'd care to share? Yeah, so a lot of my science is quite desk-based, but I've been lucky that while I was doing my PhD and postdocs, I was able to help out quite a lot on our undergraduate field courses so we you know we try and in the meteorology department we train the students how to use all the different types of weather equipment um, how to launch weather balloons how to take all these measurements and um, I went on this field course three years in a row um, I was told it would be a really nice trip down to the south coast of England have a nice almost a little holiday um, but every year it was so wet think like the worst British weather you can imagine, just grey and blue. And we were supposed to be teaching these students how to use this equipment. And we're trying to launch weather balloons. And every year the rain and wind are just horizontal. So uh, (laughs) I think the students just got um, fantastic insights into science is never straightforward when you're doing practicals. And yeah, we did eventually manage to get balloons in the in the air every year, but a lot of them bounced off buildings and hedges, and oh, it was it was quite something. I think you're now well suited to do meteorology here in in BC as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's probably very easy compared to some of these storm chasers and people I see, and like yeah, seeing people in extreme cold, which you get all kinds of weather. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious, uh, you're clearly very passionate about your work, but what's the best part about your work? What do you enjoy the most? So for me, um, the best part of what we do is, um, for me, the communication aspect. Um, So in part, I love going to conferences and talking to other scientists about what I do, but I particularly like the kind of outreach aspects. So we get a lot of opportunities to go into schools, virtually at the moment obviously with um, COVID but yeah talking to children about climate change and it's really interesting actually just learning how um, different generations feel differently about different issues so I went into a school a few weeks ago in Switzerland so we were on a zoom call 
And I told them about renewable energy and climate change. They were six, sixth grade, I think. And they were so engaged and so passionate um, and really, really, really wanted to protect the polar bears. Like all of them were so passionate about, you know, because the Arctic is warming and it's going to be worse for the polar bears. And they just wanted to make everything better for them. And I'm like, yeah, I... I agree, you know, there's all of these people in finance worrying about money and buildings. And then if you're a child, you know, what you really care about is the polar bears. So um, it's, yeah, it's really fun. And it's really good to see different takes on what we do. Wow, you really speak to all audiences. Like you said, you speak to the uh, financial magnets and also young children. That's great. Yeah, I think I'm very lucky that we get lots of opportunities to do that through the climate science department because the weather is quite an accessible subject. You know, anyone can talk about the weather. You've all had a weird weather experience. And I think with everything that's going on with climate change, um, regardless of people's views, they, they still can engage in a conversation about it. You know, they're, um, it, it, it's very interesting to everyone and very topical with politicians and in the news a lot. So it's, it's a nice topic to be able to talk to people about. I think that's um, a bit of a unique view. <laughs> Usually uh, climate change is treated as a very uh, dark and dour subject, but you do inject some sunlight into it. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I, I mean, sometimes some of the most in interesting conversations can be with people who don't agree with you, right? Because you have to really um, push yourself to make a, a sensible argument about why, you know, why what you're saying is sensible and correct. And yeah, I think it's um, it's healthy for us as scientists, I think, not just to challenge these horrible reviewer comments we get on our papers but also to be able to respond to you know normal people adults children who want to talk about it so um we've covered the best part of your work uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work for me i think the worst part of our work is that we have to write papers uh, i've never really enjoyed writing and they're almost like the currency of academia you meet someone and they say oh what's your H index? How many papers do you have? What is this weird metric? And I'm like, oh, it's a shame that, you know, that is valued a lot more than the communication. But I, I guess it's an easy metric, right, to count, um, count the beans. Um, but yeah, English was never a strong suit of mine at school. So I always find it really difficult to write up these papers. But, um, you know, again, it's good to do things you find difficult, isn't it? I just, just, um, have to properly pencil out the time to do that because there's always something that's more fun. Again, there's that optimistic attitude. And um, you've certainly got quite a few papers to your name. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky to work with some lots of other very talented early career scientists, particularly, who are much better than me at writing papers. So I've, um, in some of them, come along for the ride. Now, um, I'm curious, uh, do you feel that your field, you mentioned you work with a lot of other people. Uh, do you feel that the field is very open and welcoming or is it a little more insular and um, looking after their own? So I think climate science is generally very inclusive. You know, like um, a lot of people come into it from maths, computing, physics. It's relatively rare that people always knew they wanted to do climate science. So I think in that respect, we're very inclusive and very welcoming. Um, I think compared to a lot of fields, we have 
quite a good um, gender balance as well. I'm very rarely the only woman in the room, um, which is, you know, always, always nice. Um, yeah, I've always felt very welcomed and there's, there's lots of opportunities for all different career stages. Like I don't feel that through being an early career scientist, it's um, an extra burden and an extra struggle a lot of the time. That actually leads me to my next question. Um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's impacted your studies or your career? Hmm. Yeah, so um, I guess in science generally, being female does does lead you into an underrepresented community, although I think that's getting better. Um, so although I find the climate science community fantastic and really inclusive, I mentioned I work with lots of energy people as well. Um, I find that community uh, slightly harder work. It's less diverse. Like I have been the only woman in the room um, when I've do- when I've done um, conferences and talked about energy work. Um, but to be honest, I think when that's happened, I've just tried to play that to my advantage um, because you will be memorable because you are one of the only ones. And I think you've got to kind of swing it as a positive rather than making it really scary which the first few times I did present in front of a group where I was you know noticeably different it was quite scary um but now I'm just kind of like I would almost point it out sometimes and talk now be like look I'm under 35 and female you're not gonna forget my name like (laughs) that's great advice take your difference and turn it into an advantage I love that now, one thing that where you're not alone and where we've all had to deal with uh, changes and challenges is uh, the pandemic. Um, I'm curious, has it impacted your work and have you been able to keep working through it? Yeah, so, oh, the pandemic. Um, well, there have been some really lovely opportunities that have come from it. Um, I guess start with the positives. Um, like, for example, this week I gave a seminar in Mexico on Monday. Um, I'm talking to you now. And um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be presenting some work in um, San Francisco, all of which, you know, without this new Zoom revolution, we just wouldn't be doing um, in the same way. So in terms of being able to um, attend events and um, uh, talk to people more widely, I think it's been fantastic. Um, I have struggled a bit working from home. So I've been employed the whole way through the pandemic, but there has been um, it's all been remote working. Um, so, you know, finding that motivation and that drive to do something every day has, has been a challenge, but I think we've all developed our own weird and wonderful methods for that. Um, for me, it's actually, um, yeah, the pandemic has been quite good. So my fiance is also a postdoc and because it's hard to find jobs, we actually, during the pandemic ended live, well, just before the pandemic, we were living about 200 miles apart, um, which in the UK is a long way, you know, that's like the length of the country. Um, and because our road network's so bad, it took a long time to get to see each other. But because of now all this remote working, we're, um, you know, we're able to live together again and we're able to apply for jobs where one of us can work remotely. And it's been, you know, there's been some pros. Great. Again, you put a sunny uh, attitude on, on everything and uh, you're quite the machine. <laughs> um, Mexico, Switzerland, San Francisco, you're all over the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm not very good at saying no to things. Like, it means I end up very busy and a little bit frazzled a lot of the time. But it's just so lovely to get the opportunities to do these things, I think. Um, it's really, really great. 
Now, you have painted a wonderful picture of climate science. Um, so for anyone who's listening right now, uh, what advice would you have for them uh, if they want to go into your field? What uh, courses or background or experiences would you recommend they pursue? Yeah, so I think if you want to get into climate science, you can have pretty much any type of scientific background. Um, I would advise um, doing some like online computing courses or something like learning Python or a computing language is really powerful. Um, but lots of the universities, so um, the University of Reading, the department which I worked in, they do lots of modules. Um, so you could um, you could try out some of the courses if you thought it might be something you're interested in as a career um, to kind of get a taster of what things are like. Um, I also think there's so many good um, free resources now on places like LinkedIn and Twitter. Like I spend a lot of time just seeing people advertising free summer schools and webinars for students. Um, and I, um, we were involved in a, a summer school a few weeks ago where, you know, because of because of Zoom, we could get kind of global participation. But you can work it around your other commitments as well. So definitely. Um, yeah, uh, however you feel about social media, you know, they can be quite a good platform for finding these events and just um, searching around the globe. <laughs> Again, you can even put a positive spin on social media. <laughs> oh dear, that's a challenge, that one though, isn't it? <laughs> just about. <laughs> Maybe even more so than climate change. Uh, and personally for you, uh, what was the most important course that you took in school? So I think the most important course I took was probably um, I did a course in low carbon technologies um, during my undergraduate degree. And I think that really sparked my interest in renewable energy. And it was actually taught by some people who worked in the environmental science department. So they had a really good grasp of weather and climate. And I think if I hadn't have done that, I think I wouldn't because I'd been, you know, doing all these applied, um, sorry, all this very hardcore maths and things, I don't think I even would have ended up doing the PhD and the subjects I ended up doing. So, yeah, for me, that was really pivotal. Um, and it's, yeah, it just shows that like, even if you're doing a degree and you've got absolutely no idea what you want to do afterwards, which I didn't, you know, just one module and you can just be like, oh, okay, now, now I'm ready. Yeah, it's just that one course that can change your life sometimes. You mentioned that you've been studying uh, how climate change is go going to impact renewable energy sources. Uh, how is it going to impact those sources? Yeah, so, um, well, for, so for wind power, the response is actually very complex. So climate models, um, wind response, uh, all very different. But there's generally this kind of phenomena which we call global stilling. Um, so what it, it basically means, because the... All of our winds on the planet are driven by the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. Um, and I mean, we mentioned the polar bears earlier. We're warming the Arctic um, at a quicker rate than we're warming the rest of the planet. So it means this difference, um, this temperature gradient isn't as strong, um, which means as we continue this warming, that there's a general trend that the winds kind of tend to still. So winds are potentially going to go going to get a little bit less windy um but this isn't a disaster for wind power um because the wind turbines can like run at a whole range of wind speeds and this is a very very small change to the mean of a number which in the places we've built the wind turbines it's really windy um so you know they'll they'll be fine um it's um definitely not an anti-wind power argument here this global stilling but the um 
yeah, it's been interesting to be able to quantify it. Um, so there are regions where potentially where this global stilling is a little bit less prevalent, we might want to build even more wind energy. Does that mean fewer windstorms? Uh, it's a good question. So all of this kind of, this is all kind of like our mean climate. So we'll probably get just as many um, big events like the storms and um, yeah, all the extreme weather. Yeah. Scientists that actually look into the extreme weather say potentially a lot of it will become more common um, with climate change. So this underlying um, heating that we're doing of the planet um, does, yeah, it's very complex, these responses. We get changes in the mean of these fields and we get lots of changes in the big extreme weather. So, um, yeah, there's lots to think about. Now, um, I'm curious, getting to where you were, or getting or where you are now, um, it's very rarely a walk that we take alone. Uh, did you have anyone who helped you along or inspired you while you were studying? Yeah, I, was, I worked, when I did my PhD, I was in a very, very supportive department. So um, the meteorology department at Reading, it's just like a big family. Um, and I think actually the people who inspired me the most were people who worked there, who I had no scientific interaction with. There were quite a few professors who were very senior who were always just very happy to just talk to you about your work and they they did normal people things like had coffee breaks and they ate their lunch and they would have a chat with you while you ate your lunch and for me that was just so encouraging to see these people who were so successful and you'd see their hundreds of papers but also that they could be so normal and they could also fail to use the microwave or you know it was um it was very humbling to see and interact with them and to hear their early career experiences as well was like really, really, um, really, really nice. I, I would encourage people like at starting out in science, ask the professors about normal people things because um, they're very happy to talk about them. And they've got some really funny stories. It's always funny to learn that profs really are people. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I know. We put them in these ivory towers and, you know, however close you get to that point, I think, um, even my professors, they look at their professors and are like, oh, oh, no, 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 they're, they're, they're a whole different league. And you're like, yeah, the imposter syndrome in academia is high, I think. <laughs> it's the same rule as with bears. They're more afraid of you than you are of them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> You're just at the beginning of your career, as you mentioned. Um, but I want you to look to the long term, uh, to the end of your career. What would you like to be your professional legacy? Or what do you want written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Oh, that's a scary question. So for me, it would be very, really fantastic. So all my work is kind of aimed around making weather and climate data more accessible to these sectors like energy, insurance, finance, um, if, you know, if my tombstone could be like Hannah Bloomfield, she made life easier. I think that would be fantastic, you know. And I guess the technical version of that is um, she made weather and climate data a lot more accessible to people who don't know how to use it. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a great aim. And I think you'll, you'll achieve that very soon. <laughs> oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. Now, um... I often find that the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career uh, is very, very different at the end of their career, especially these days when the world is just changing so quickly. And I don't doubt that climate science is changing at lightning speed as well. Um, 
how do you see the field changing? And what advice do you have for young people uh, to anticipate some of those changes? Yeah, it's a good question. So climate science is changing rapidly. I think that we have, even in the time that I've been working in the field, which isn't very long in the grand scheme of things, the amount of computational power that we have is increasing so rapidly. You know, we've got massive servers, we've got supercomputers, the models can run at so much higher resolution, there's so much more um, there's so much more data, we're absolutely flooded with data, whereas I think in previous generations getting hold of data to do analysis was a challenge. So again, I think computational skills to be able to manage this data is really important. And now we've got loads of data, actually the field of statistics is, is really coming into play a lot because there's when you start having lots of data, um, rather than just caring about things like the mean, so much of climate science is now is interested in the extremes because we've finally got enough data that we can start to think about things like what might happen on a one in a hundred year timescale or, you know, we, 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 yeah, this is the kind of things people are starting to think about. So um, people are thinking in the future, like think about computing, think about statistics. And because I think that's where everything is going now. Um, loads of amazing simulations. That's cool. We often hear, um, you know, such and such event is a one in 100 year event. Um, but you're saying that we have enough of those now that we can actually start to predict them with a little more accuracy or, or am I misunderstanding? Well, we have enough, um, we have long enough data records that we can actually say that happened one in a hundred years because we've got over a hundred years of data now. Um, whereas, you know, our older measurement records. So we only started having satellites and measurement materials like that in sort of the late seventies. Um, so we're, you know, there's loads of amazing projects that try and rebuild old archives of data um, from satellites and we're running models backwards in time with um, the best observations from the ground, from people's weather stations. And yeah, we're, we're just really starting to get a better grasp of what extreme means. That's something I guess we're, we're struggling with now is um, almost extreme fatigue because it seems like every year um, we've got some new extreme that we have to to be alarmed about yes exactly yeah no there's there's a lot going on i think there's been a like if you think about globally there have been floods all over the place this summer you know the uk um central europe india regions of africa um big heat waves and cold waves in america there's there's a lot going on and i think we're much more aware of it because of our heightened um, awareness on climate change um, we've got you know lots of different components and parts of our everyday lives that are very dependent on the weather um, so like our our road networks and transmission you know everything gets gridlocked if there's extreme weather um, and yeah we I think as humans we're becoming much more interested in, in extreme weather than we could have been before well, those are all the questions that I have for you for today. Um, did I miss anything? Is there anything you want to add? No, I don't think so. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Hannah. And good luck with your um, with your new job. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your passion and uh, your enthusiasm and your optimism in what can often be a very um, depressing topic. <laughs> but you uh, make it very manageable. <laughs> 
Oh, you're very welcome. I yeah, we try and spread the joy. You know, climate science should be fun. Um, should be something we can all engage with. Um, and yeah, although the final, you know, the final results sometimes can be a bit bleak. Um, once we know them, we can you know do this attribution work and try and mitigate the damage. Right. So yeah. So hope is not lost. Wonderful words. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.